1: If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
2: These are challenging times, but you don't have to navigate them alone. Welcome to How Can I Help? I'm Dr. Gail Saltz. I'm a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, a psychoanalyst, and best selling author. And I'm here every week to answer your most pressing questions, hopefully with understanding, insight, and advice. Today, we're going to tackle some questions that are about sex. And I thought it would be really helpful to have a guest with me today who is a very well-known sex therapist, and I thought it would add a lot of dimension to the information. My guest today is Ian Kerner, a psychotherapist and nationally recognized sexuality counselor who specializes in sex therapy and couples therapy. He's the author of the huge bestseller, She Comes First, The Thinking Man's Guide to Pleasuring a Woman. And now he has a new book out, So tell me about the last time you had sex, laying bare, and learning to repair our love lives. Ian, I am super excited to have you here because, well, we've done a number of things in the past together about relationships and sexual issues, and you're the man, as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) Yeah when when it comes to sex therapists and communicating this kind of information to people, which can be hard for people to even ask about, let alone um, really engage in a conversation about. So we did get some questions today, which I definitely want to hit that are about the sexual part of relationships. And I'm glad that people feel people can ask anonymously here so people do feel comfortable writing in with their questions about sexual issues. But before that, how has this past year, this difficult, difficult year and a half, really, of social distancing in particular in the pandemic affected your patient population, would you say?
3: Yeah, well, it's interesting, Gail. Um, You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I wasn't getting any calls for new patients. I get a lot of calls, you know, on a weekly basis. And I thought, oh, wow, you know what? People are finally having sex. No more excuses, like uh, no more commuting and um, no more obligations after work and just being exhausted. Well, boy, was I wrong. I'm glad I didn't put any money on that bet, because it only took about a couple of weeks for, um, you know, just uh, I got an onslaught of uh, patient uh, requests, and it's really, it's really been persistent. And And I think what's happening is that people are coming in not with new problems, Gail, it's still desire discrepancy issues, sexual function issues, pleasure based issues, but they're really amplified. You know, right? Because COVID has really taken such a, a sort of a, a multi-level hit on our sex lives, right? I mean, from a, just a health perspective, we're, um, we're we're eating differently. We're we're not uh, exercising as much. We're turning to smoking and drinking and vaping as sort of a coping mechanism. Um, you know, so that affects our sexual health. We're we're um, we're not changing out of our out of our pajamas we're not brushing our teeth or showering i mean clearly that affects you know your sense of attractiveness your self esteem and i think most importantly or the biggest factors we're really living on top of each other we're not getting out we don't have these um you know external outlets um and and so there's just this kind of relational claustrophobia we're so near experience um so i think all of that is um is really combining and it's particularly painful when you know a friday night comes along and there isn't much to do except watch netflix or maybe have sex and you're not having sex it's really apparent right like you strip everything away and it becomes really apparent
2: so you found old patients calling you back or new patients saying i didn't have this problem before Or, I did have this problem before, but now I'm sort of ready to, like, it's so amplified, I'm ready to deal with it. Or did you have people returning and saying, well, things had been better, but boy, they're not good now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I'd say all of the above. Old patients returning, new patients coming in with new problems, new patients coming in with problems. They just, you know, people wait. Going to a sex therapist is like going to a dentist. You usually wait until you're in pain and you've waited way too long uh, and, you know, you just want to uh, get out of pain. Now, I should say on a positive note uh, that some of my patients, especially the couples who don't have kids or who don't have young kids, they actually, um, some of them really use this as an opportunity to get closer sexually. And to finally work on their sex life or to put themselves through a little bit of a sex boot camp, they can have sex at different times, you know, in in different rooms, they can try things, they have more time for things. So it's not all bleak, you know, but I think when you're part of like a a system where there are young kids and, and work and, you know, you're just suddenly having to wear so many different hats, I think that's where the where people have really been challenged.
2: So let's get to it and see... How can we help? So the first question, dear Dr. Salts, my partner and I have very different libidos. I want to have sex multiple times a week, whereas they only do once every two weeks. I love them very much, but it is hard when we seem to have very different sexual needs. What do you suggest? Is our relationship doomed?
3: You know, uh, first of all, I would say, you know, it is important to manage, um, To regulate your own sexuality as well, in addition to co-regulating, right? We do want to have sex with our partners, but, you know, if someone really wants to have sex multiple times a week and they're at a place in a relationship or in their life cycle where that's really pressure for a partner, then there's going to have to be some kind of self-regulation strategy, like, you know, um, in terms of how you manage your own sexuality and and your self-pleasure. But what I found interesting about the question is how they've already sort of labeled in this, it feels like one person has been labeled as the high desire partner and the other person's been labeled as the low desire partner and and that's a way that we talk like, oh, I always want it more. I'm the high desire partner. And I actually think it's not about libido types like low or high. I think it's about creating a, a shared desire framework um, where the way in which you're generating desire works for both of you. like for this high desire partner, Uh, he or she, they may see us get a single sexual cue, like their partner coming out of the shower, and they're ready to go. So yeah, so they're ready to go three times a week, five times a week, seven times a week, because that's how they process a sexual cue. And it doesn't matter if kids are crying in the other room, or there's an appointment coming up, that's how they handle a sexual cue. But for their partner, their partner might have a kind of desire that emerges from the simmering of arousal and from reducing stress and allowing those uh, turn-ons to get turned on. So, it's a, it's, it might be a slower process or a simmering process, but when they get to desire, it's just as strong. So, they're not a low-desire person. They're just a different desire person. And so, understanding kind of what desire framework you operate in and creating a shared framework with your partner is where I would really
2: start. This person is concerned. Is our relationship doomed? No, but it does require it does require some work to understand this, so that there aren't hurt feelings. As you said, you know, you want it all the time, or hey, you you never want it, and taking it personally, um, and 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 you're saying this framework of um, this is how we understand each other's desire, which is different. You know, I might be the rabbit, and you might be the turtle, or I might be the you know, like we we have a different style. Um, is a way of sort of not personalizing it in a hurtful way. Um, and at the same time, as you're saying, maybe the person who, who wants to or feels stimulated more often might need to be given permission to and, and help to masturbate sometimes as a way of, of or, you know, self-pleasure themselves so that, that they don't feel frustrated a lot of the time, but, but be able to appreciate themselves and yet still appreciate their partner.
3: And, you know, and maybe the, the partner who's a little bit of a turtle, and let's remember, that turtle was pretty strong and had a lot of stamina and ultimately won the race. Exactly. Maybe that turtle just um, needs to lean in a little more or sometimes have a little more willingness because if they need to percolate, then you have to have the willingness to let yourself
2: percolate, you know? So, you would advise, there, there does have to be some movement toward the middle, some compromise, um, but it doesn't have to be a 100% compromise.
3: Absolutely. Move towards the middle and uh, change the internal model of how you're thinking about your partner, right? I'm sure these people are thinking right now, like, oh, they're so low desire. They never initiate. What's wrong with them? And that's like a, a an image in their mind. And I'm sure in the other partner's mind, it might be like, oh, all they want is sex, sex, sex. What about, you know, romance? Or what about these other things? Or what about you know, helping out, right? So we need to also update
2: our internal models of each other. How can I help with Dr. Gail Saltz? We'll be back after this short break.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of.
2: Dear Dr. Saltz, I have been curious about experimenting sexually, but I have been with my current partner for a long time. I don't want them to feel rejected if I suggest wanting to explore different kinks or bring new things into the bedroom. So how do I go about having this conversation with my partner? Do you have any advice for expanding my own sexual boundaries? Well, I would say let's
3: distinguish... This is a person who, it seems, they want more adventure. They want uh, potentially kink. They want more eroticism. They maybe want more fantasy, and they're they're afraid to bring all of that up with their partner. It's vulnerable. Um, they don't want their partner to feel rejected. You know, the first thing I would say is um, let's distinguish the idea and the thought and the fantasy from the behavior itself. Right? Like, not all fantasies have to lead to behaviors maybe they will, maybe they won't. But if like, if sex is a swimming pool, there's a way of dipping your toes into the shallow end before jumping into the deep end. And you know, what I love about sexual conversation and sexual stimuli without even action is that it creates physical arousal. So I bet if this person without any kind of like you have to do this, or I want to do this, if this person just said, you know, I had like the sexiest, hottest dream about the two of us, or I actually, I have, I'm not saying we have to do this, but I just want you to know, like, I I have fantasies about you and they're real turn-ons. If you could help that partner to feel safe in the terrain of fantasy and to open up the conversation, I think you'd be surprised at where you can both go. And again, it's about meeting in the middle, right? You might find that one partner is actually hey, I might actually like to try some of this stuff. I didn't think I would. And the other partner might end up saying, "You know, hey, it's enough to just sort of like watch it or talk about it or share it or role play it a little between the two of us. I don't actually need to go out there in the world and and do this thing.
2: So it's about conversation first, but you're suggesting to this person at least, hey, bring it up, not in a, can we do X? Mm-hmm. like in that direct way, but more in a roundabout, I think about this and it's sexy to me, or I saw this or I dreamt this or, you know, some, some content that's not, um, we need to do this now. But I had an experience myself in my mind and it turned me on and I wanted to share it with you. I don't know what you would think about it, you know, but it, it's definitely turned on for me. And just see where they go with that. You know, I mean, I guess it does leave you vulnerable. You risk the other person saying, what? That does not turn me on. Um, But obviously, you hope if you do it in this kind of way that it might open the door for your partner to to say, well, I don't find that particularly a turn on, but I do find this a particular turn on. It might open a sexual conversation that lets you both have the freedom to Talk about what's exciting to each of you, which might, as this person is concerned about, open up new doors. Yep,
3: no, I think that that is uh, exactly true. And I found when you can create emotional safety around this, or put the put boundaries around it that you both agree on, um, you know, fantasy can can flourish. You know, like I actually have talked to a lot of couples where there was pressure to go have a threesome, and it just led to so much conflict. But when they actually talked about it in, in a way that was not going to the behavior, it was really a turn-on for both of them, right? So, so, let's decouple the erotic from the behavioral for a period of time.
2: What I love about what you're bringing up, and it, it does apply even to this person's question who says, do you have any advice for expanding my own sexual boundaries, is that so often people, it's hard for people to remember that thought is not behavior. That fantasy is thought, and, you, and it's safe, if you will, to, to think about whatever you want. And people fantasize about all kinds of things that they don't necessarily ever want to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and sometimes because people are frightened of those thoughts, because they think it means they want maybe want to do it, they suppress their own fantasies. That's right. Fantasies that could be used in, in, in enhancing their own, as sh- this person brings up, sexual boundaries, their own sexual pleasure. Um, you know, you can be in bed and fantasize about all manner of things that you would never want to actually do, and, or, and maybe even not the person that you're actually with, but if it's serving your sexual life with this person. That is not a bad thing, but people often squelch it because they just feel afraid. And and I would say,
3: go for it, you know, and don't just say, oh, I want to do this thing or I'm thinking about this thing. Put a little sexy language around it and and let it come from a place of desire. I find across the board, Gail, uh, age, gender, orientation, we want to feel desired, you know? So I, I would say, take the risk. Let your partner feel desired and it's desired in a new way but it's just a it's just a fantasy
2: so you've got this fabulous new book out and a key element is this idea of the sex script Mm -hmm. can you tell us what is the sex script basically and how can it help us to understand our own sex script sure um so you know Couples come in with problems,
3: um, individuals come in with problems, desire issues. And, uh, and you know, like I said, people really want to get out of pain. So <clears throat> get out of pain. So I want to work quickly, right? I don't have time to do like a psychoanalytic journey with someone. So I've developed a methodology where once I've learned about the problem, one of the first questions I ask is, so tell me about the last time you had sex. And it's, it's a simple question. But we really start to get the feeling of that of sex being an event with a beginning middle and an end and a sequence of interactions that are are physical that are emotional and psychological that all come together and that is sort of really what I call the sex script everything that happens from the moments you initiate to um, where you're having sex to the eroticism to how you're building arousal to how you're Reaching orgasm to how you're connecting afterwards to the erotic thread that leads you to another sexual event, and generally what I have found is a that people have sex scripts. you know, if you've been in a relationship or even if you're dating, you know you, you tend to have uh, ideas about how you should be having sex and, and ways that you're having sex. And look, if your sex script works, fantastic. I'm not seeing those people. What I'm seeing are people whose sex scripts are reinforcing the problem that they're coming in with. So I'm literally looking to rewrite the sex script where problems are occurring. So it could be in the desire phase, right? Like one partner just gets out of the gate so quickly desire-wise and can just launch into arousal and the other partner really gets left behind. Well, that's a problem in the sex script that needs to be changed to get them into to a, a desire framework or Maybe someone's just not getting turned on enough, and their head is filled with anxiety, and they can't focus. Well, maybe they need not just physical stimulation, but maybe maybe they need psychological stimulation. Maybe we need to bring that mind-based arousal, some of that fantasy, into the picture. So it's really just looking at slow motion in a of uh, looking in slow motion at a sexual event. And kind of figuring out how to work with it and kind of rewrite it a little bit.
2: We hope you thought that was helpful. I really love the idea that when tackling sex and sexuality, Ian puts a particular spin on thinking about the cultural and societal issues that we struggle with, we all struggle with in terms of sexuality. It's so interesting. I love your idea that you'd like to change some of the cultural themes um, that are really stuck um, in our society. We are a highly sexualized society, actually. You, everywhere you turn, right? There's something about sex. We, we sexualize younger and younger people. Um, and yet, it, it's sort of this oxymoron. You know, Everything is very sexualized, but it's not about actual sex. I mean, it, it's 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 or it's certainly not about erotic. Right. It's really very superficial, I guess I'll say, and it's not about sort of meaningful sexual engagement. And and we still have a lot of taboo mm-hmm. uh, in talking about what's really on our minds or what's really going on with our partners.
3: Yeah, that's so true. There are so many cultural narratives. I mean, I think for me, this my whole book really began with my own origin story, which is. I struggled so terribly with sexual dysfunction, and it was really a dysfunction that was only dysfunction uh when you accept what I call sort of the intercourse discourse, and that there's one way that sex is supposed to look. But as soon as I kind of challenged that and decided, well, I could create an outer course based script, you know maybe I can't get the sex in my head to match up with my genitals, but there's other ways for me to express myself, and I feel like since then i've been having to constantly challenge these narratives. You know, I'm in my mid fifties right now and I can honestly say I'm truly having better sex than when I was in my thirties, when I had kids around or when I was not taking care of myself as well. But you would say at 55, you're supposed to be, you know, long dormant sexually, you know? So Lord, I hope not. Right. (laughs) No. So, I mean, just, we should constantly be challenging these narratives.
2: Well, well, Thank you so much for all of these great—not just pearls of wisdom, but you know, um, really thoughts about culturally and psychologically how we how we tackle really such an important part of life, and particularly after this year and a half that has been so difficult. I think a lot of people have had a lot of perspective changes in terms of what really matters. You're seeing you're seeing data come out about what people are seeking now. And it has more to do with relationships than anything else, honestly. Um, and particularly even for young people are looking more for long-term meaningful relationships as opposed to just, you know, hopping around. And um, of course, having a, a healthy sexual life is ultimately a big, important part of that. So it, it seems to me that the, the idea of, um, of understanding your sex script and um and and trying to make it as healthy as you can and um and being willing to talk to someone like you if you are having a struggle um is so 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 important so i i hope that people get an idea that um it's not a scary place (laughs) and um it can really it can make all the difference
3: yeah yep thank you no um Sometimes I'll work with a couple or an individual for just one session, right? Sometimes it doesn't take more than a single session. I just did that yesterday to feel normalized and to have some psychoeducation and to have a sense of direction. So um, be proactive. You know, sex is important. It's a a vital, central part of our lives.
2: Fabulous. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Gail. Do you have a problem I can help with? If so, email me at howcanihelp at senecawomen.com. All senders remain anonymous. And listen every Friday to How Can I Help? With me, Dr. Gail Saltz. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving
1: into hope.